Take your Bible, if you would, join me today in Romans chapter number one, Romans chapter number one. Now, this was several years ago. In fact, it was almost, well, it was more than 30 years ago when this happened. And that is, I went into a jeweler store and I began to look for rings. And so they're bringing out different diamonds of different shades and sizes. And and they're, of course, seeking to inform me about the quality and caliber of the diamonds. And and I don't know that I was overly um, um, prepared to know all the details about a diamond. I just wanted one that, that looked beautiful. And, so they put an assortment in front of me and, and uh, we started to look at diamonds. And they always did it against a particular backdrop. And you're probably, you know, two steps ahead of me as to what kind of backdrop the diamond was always shown. It was always shown against a dark, in fact, a black velvet piece of cloth. So they would spread the cloth out on this glass cabinet and and then they would open up a locked cabinet and bring out the diamonds and then they would place those, you know, we call them rocks, but they are not even pebbles, okay? They're very small and and we'd place them on there and, and we would look at the beauty of the diamond, the brilliance of the diamond against the, the deep dark color of the velvet. And the velvet, of course, makes the diamond stand out. I don't know that it changes the diamond. It just highlights the brilliance of the same. Over the course of the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at what we will call the dark backdrop of sin. And quite frankly, it is not one of those sections of scripture that we just turn to with with automatic anticipation and excitement because we're going to be in Romans chapter one. It is the dark backdrop of sin that is placed before us and it's, and it's, not, um, it's not improved. It's not, um, it's not nuanced in ways that we don't have to look at all the ugly reality of sin. It's just laid out there with all of its hideousness and we're expected to look at it, to actually observe it. But the more we look and see the reality of the dark backdrop of sin, the more beautiful the diamond of Jesus Christ becomes. So your Bibles are open right now to Romans chapter one. Let's begin in verse number 17. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, 
and their foolish heart was darkened. In our culture, our society today, we do things that we didn't have the ability to do some years ago. For example, today we have the ability to to realize the gender of a child uh, in ways that we, we never had the ability to do before. It was the child was born and then a doctor or someone caring for this birth would say you had a boy or you had a girl. But today, we, we with, with incredible accuracy, we can predict and, and know the gender of a child. There, things are revealed to us. There are some old wives' tales regarding how to figure out the gender of a child. Do any of you know some of those old wives' tales? Have you ever tried them before? So, so I have, uh, my nephew's wife is pregnant with their first child. And we were all as a family home at Christmas. And of course, they're, they're telling us about the pregnancy and we're excited. But they don't know the gender of the child yet. And so my sister Nikki said, this always works. So we got a piece of string and we got a nail. How many of you have ever heard this before? Okay, so a string, nail, try this at home, okay. And so she laid down on the, on the floor and my sister Nikki took this little piece of string and, and I don't remember, I had, to, I had to check to see which it is. Yeah, if the string goes back and forth, it is a boy. If it goes around in circles, then it's a girl. So we take the string and we hold the string and she holds the string and all of a sudden the string starts going back and forth. And like, I mean, she just held it and it starts moving back and forth. So I'm watching this happen and I'm saying, give me that string. Because I think she's probably, you know, kind of just subtly going like this. I said, give me that. And so she gave it to me. And, and um, so we did it again. And I'm holding it as still as I can. And all of a sudden, this thing starts swinging back and forth. And I'm like, I'm not doing anything. So we did it to me. And no, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't do it to me. But we did it to her and we said, hey, it's going to be a boy. And we're all excited because two different people independently, we both tried it. And, and very soon she went to the doctor and sure enough, she's going to have a girl. So um, <laughs> there's no boy coming. You know, there are certain things that we anticipate, like I think I know the answer to this. And, and maybe sometimes we know and, and sometimes we don't. But there are some things that God has revealed to us and with with accuracy that is unquestionable, God has revealed aspects about humanity that humanity can make no mistake about. In fact, have you ever had someone say, you have absolutely no excuse? Or they walk in and they see some mess that you've made and, and the kids were into whatever and as soon as they see mom walk in and she looks around and she says, there is no excuse for this. Well, when God looks at mankind and then mankind returns the gaze at God and God sees the condition of mankind, he can with absolute certainty say there is absolutely no excuse. We're going to look today at at three aspects of revelation. Revelation within. And then we'll see the the revelation without. And finally, we will see revelation withheld. 
Let's begin by looking at the revelation within. Skip down a couple verses in the passage that is our text and look at verse number 19. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest. Do you see those next two words? In them. For God hath showed it unto them. This is the revelation within. You and I were born with an internal understanding that there is a God and we can actually know him. Tertullian was one of the early church fathers. He said in effect, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said it was not the pen of Moses that initiated the knowledge of the creator. Now we know that Moses was the human author of the first five books of our Bible. We refer to them as the Pentateuch. The, we, we understand that these are formative, very important aspects of scripture. But Tertullian is saying, it is not the first five books, it's not the pen of Moses that reveals God to mankind. He goes on and he helps us understand the vast majority of mankind, though they had never heard the name of Moses, to say nothing of his book, know the God of Moses nonetheless. There is something to be known about God that all mankind has no excuse by saying, well, well, I never had the books of Moses. God says that every man stands before him without excuse. A disease left Helen Keller at the age of 19 months old without sight, without hearing, without obviously the ability to speak. Through Ann Sullivan's tireless and selfless efforts, Helen finally learned to communicate through touch and later learned to talk. When Miss Sullivan first tried to tell Helen about God, the girl's response was this, I already know about him. I just don't know his name. How does she know about God? Because all mankind stands without excuse because the truths regarding God, that he exists and that you and I can actually respond to the light of his existence. And then God then says, I will be responsible to give you additional light. Helen Keller says, listen, I know there's a God. Now tell me, who is he? Paul is saying that there are things you can know about God apart from some special revelation. No, I can't know everything about God apart from his word. But what can I know about God? What has he revealed to all of mankind? Look back at verse number 17 in our text today. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Paul begins with a brief statement in this passage of scripture that offers some incredible clarity into the simplicity of the gospel. So so this is not necessarily all a part of what we're trying to demonstrate as the revelation within, but Paul is just saying, okay, let's not not breeze over the gospel. And so he just gives us this beautiful statement. He says, you know, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The phrase, the just shall live by faith. This is a quotation from Habakkuk 2.4. And really what he's saying is it's, it's all of faith. He says, the just shall live by faith. And then he says, from faith to faith. You say, well, what does that mean? It means it begins with faith. 
and it is lived by faith. The Christian life is a walk that starts and carries on by faith. Salvation brings by faith and the Christian journey is continued the same way, by faith. In the previous verse, verse number 16, we read, it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, believeth by faith. Now Paul goes on to declare the work of God that reveals two things specifically in our text. The righteousness of God, which is contrasted against the unrighteousness of man. And by the way, it is quite a contrast. Think about this, the righteousness of God. Verse number 17 has just stated that the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, we're about to see the beauty of his righteousness, but it can never be fully appreciated unless understood against the backdrop of our sin. We know God's righteousness, it is contrasted against our two letters in front of that word, our unrighteousness. You say, well, what is righteousness? Righteousness is whatever God is. He is now our standard. So what God eschews, what God runs from, what he, what he says, I can't even think about. I'm of purer eyes than to look upon. Okay, so what God then has to turn away from, God says, do you want to live a righteous life? Then you turn away from the same. Okay, whatever God is, now we understand that's right because this is God. That's wrong because that is not God. God becomes our definition of righteousness. Righteousness for us simply means a conformity to the right. Whatever God is, we understand where righteousness comes from. And if we don't, we will never understand our own unrighteousness. So the righteousness of God and then the wrath of God. There are some things that we don't want to look at. We, we, just, we just don't want to see it. Hey, have you ever seen something while you're walking down the street and you see a person and they are a person that are experiencing what we call the dregs, the, 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 the bottom of humanity. And sometimes we just don't even want our eyes to behold that. You catch something that, that comes in front of you and all of a sudden it's just like, oh, I don't, I don't want to look at that. that oh, no, I don't want to see that. I don't even want to think about that right now. But not only has God revealed his righteousness, God also reveals something else. And this is the wrath of God. Well, I just want to think about the love of God because God is love, right? He is perfect love and God is also perfect in his judgment, his holiness, which brings about the wrath of God. By ignoring certain things, we, we somehow hope to make them go away, to act as if they do not exist. At times they may even be removed from the forefront of our minds, but they are still as real and as relevant as they have always been. George Rogers wrote the following. He said that God's righteous anger never rises, never abates. It is always at flood tide in the presence of sin because he is unchangeably and inflexibly righteous. This doesn't mean that God always immediately judges sin, but it does mean that God always sees sin as it truly is. He didn't at one point in time say, well, I'm, I'm just going to give a pass to that sin because it's not so offensive to me. Isn't it interesting that sometimes sin becomes more tolerable to us the more we're exposed to it? Like the more I, I see something, the more I'm confronted with something, 
I can remember back to my own college days. And, and of course, you know, back in, back in my college days, man, we just, we didn't have screens at all. The only screen that we would have been familiar with was potentially a television screen in the, the living room of our home. But we didn't carry screens with us in our pockets. And, and so screens were just a thing that were relegated typically to a specific place. And so we'd come to college and, and we'd be completely removed from screens. And then, you know, we'd go home at Christmas and I can remember how offensive it was to hear the name of God taken vainly because I hadn't heard that for some time. And now someone was just ushered into my living room and takes the high holy name of God in a way that I found offensive. But I also found it interesting that the more I was exposed to that, the less offensive it became. But not with God. God doesn't look at something and say, this, this is, is offensive to me. But you know, the more culture adopts it, the less offensive to me it becomes. Why doesn't God adjust? Why doesn't he adopt? Why doesn't he kind of roll with the times? Because God is perfect and just in all his ways. And what he was yesterday, he is today and he will be tomorrow. So, so righteousness doesn't change with God. Therefore, wrath doesn't change with God. One commentary speaking of the wrath of God said it this way. Any God who does not have wrath is a monstrosity, a crippled God. God's attributes are balanced by his perfection. God is perfect in his love, but he is also perfect in his holiness and his justice. It is perfectly and gloriously true that God is love, but anyone who does not take account of the hatred of God, the hatred of God, has failed to comprehend one of the most important truths in the universe. God is love toward the sinner, but God is hate towards sin. Could we hold in respect any God who did not hate sin? And toward what is the wrath of God directed? That's verse number 18. Look again at our text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The words hold the truth. This means to suppress. Who, who try to put a lid on the truth. Who try to hold back. To, to build some dam against the truth. Now, now, now what is it that God's wrath then is, is, is demonstrated toward? The unrighteousness, the ungodliness of men who do what? They try to suppress, hold back the righteousness of God. We live in a world today that, that is upside down regarding what we call truth and, and evil, right and wrong, righteousness. and we've, we've, we've swapped the definitions. We live in a world that is constantly about trying to suppress the righteousness to hold it back, to somehow quench or quell the truths of Almighty God. Uh, Jody McLeod uh, was a principal in, in Roan County High School. And when the Supreme Court ruled that school-sponsored prayer at any public school was unconstitutional, he was put in somewhat of a quandary. McLeod doesn't know, what do I do now? Because we have had a long-standing tradition to pray before every high school football game. It's part of our culture. It's part of what we do at, at Roan County High School. And so he was put in a difficult position. 
So the evening for this, this first football game where, where now he's told he can't pray, he made this statement, which is actually recorded into the, the government records. There was a, a congressperson that read it into the actual transcripts. He said, it has always been a custom at Roan County High School football games to say a prayer and play the national anthem to honor God and country. Due to a recent court ruling by the Supreme Court, I am told that saying a prayer is now a violation of federal case law. As I understand the law at this time, I can use this facility to approve of sexual perversion and call it an alternate lifestyle. And if someone is offended, that's okay. I can use it to condone sexual promiscuity by dispensing resources and call it safe sex. And if someone is offended, that's okay. I can even use this facility to present the merits of killing an unborn baby as a viable means of birth control. And if someone is offended, no problem. I can designate a school day as Earth Day and involve students in activities to religiously worship and praise the goddess, Mother Earth, and call it ecology. I can use literature, videos, and presentations in the classroom that depict people with traditional Christian convictions as simple-minded and ignorant and call it enlightenment. However, if anyone uses this facility to honor God and ask him to bless this game with safety and good sportsmanship, federal case law is violated. Apparently, we are to be tolerant of everything and everyone except God and his commandments. Nevertheless, as a school principal, I frequently ask staff and students to abide by rules with which they do not necessarily agree. For me to do otherwise would be inconsistent. For this reason, I shall render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and refrain from praying over the public address system. However, if you feel inspired to honor, praise, and thank God and ask him in the name of Jesus to bless this event, please feel free to do so by yourself. As far as I know, that is not against the law yet. And many in moments of silence bowed their heads and prayed in the name of Jesus Christ to the God of heaven. We live in a day that is seeking to suppress, hold back that which is true, even as the very truth is revealed within us. But God doesn't stop there. In other words, that would be enough, but God goes beyond just the revelation of himself that is built into every man. God now not only reveals himself within, but he gives us this revelation without. Look at verse number 20, Revelation chapter 1. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This passage of scripture reminds us, it, it, it rewinds the, the, the Bible tape just a bit when we come to passages just like Psalm chapter 19. Where in verse number one, we read the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. 
Do you know what he's saying? He's saying day unto day uttereth speech. Every day there's a sermon and it is preached by means of the creation of the world. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. And then he says, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what language you speak. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Every day, all of mankind has a continual sermon that's being preached before us. And it's the sermon of God's creation. You and I stand absolutely without excuse. Footprints tell us that someone or something was there. We see a child's footprints in the snow. We know that the the child has been playing. It's obvious their footprints are left behind. We, We, last night, Julie and I went for a walk along the beach And you could tell that other people had been there. All you had to do was look and you could see, was there there just one person? At times you could see two sets of footprints and you imagine that the two hand in hand are walking along the beach as the the waves wash upon the shore. There's not a lot of question as to was anyone ever here? Well, we know there were people here because there were footprints that marked the way. And do you know what Almighty God has done for people like me, for people like you? He has left his footprints all across creation for us to be able to see clearly God was here. We we speak about an argument that we use, the teleological argument. The Greek word telos, it means purpose. There is a purpose for creation that any honest person looking just barely beyond their eyes can see. There is an almighty God who has infused this world with purpose. We all have a natural intuition that recognizes that these materials had a higher design imposed upon them. When we step back and look at creation, we know that something has imposed upon everything that I see. So then why does mankind embrace what we commonly refer to today as evolution, which the Bible dogmatically from the opening verses, the opening words in the beginning, God created. Why does the Bible so vehemently oppose evolution? And why would mankind so so vehemently embrace evolution? Why do we embrace it? I would submit that the theory of evolution removes our responsibility to any power other than our own selves. Without a creator God, we become gods unto our own selves, the captain of our own fate, if you will. C.S. Lewis, at a time when evolution was accepted by both scientists and many theologians as well, indicates that evolution was, quote, devised not to get in facts, but to keep out God. What Paul is saying in verse number 20 is that God has not only revealed himself to those who would look within, he has also revealed himself to those who would look around, look at creation. How many of you have a card that that looks something, let's see here, something like this. How many of you have a card that looks something like this? I mean, you know, if I had you raise your hand, I mean, maybe everybody 13 and older would raise their hand. Okay, how many of you have a pin number that goes along with your card? How many of you have a pin number? Okay, let's say them out loud. Okay, no, we won't. We won't do that. <laughs> so you have a pin number. 
And my pin number for this is none of your business, okay? So, <laughs> so I have a pin number. D- did you know that, that, um, that those who, who run numbers, so to speak, they say that you, you basically have a one in 10,000 chance of getting someone else's card and putting in the right four digit pin number, a one in 10,000 chance. I think it's probably three in in 10,000 because usually the bank gives you three opportunities to get it right until they eat your card and and, um, require your firstborn or whatever to to get get your pin back or establish a new one. Even the simplest of life forms there are those that tell us that the, 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 the most basic organism to have happened by chance, the probability of this happening is staggering. Scientists say that it would be 10 to the 3,330th power. That would be like guessing a 3,000 digit pin. For creation, for life to have happened by chance. To look upon creation and deny that there is intelligence behind the design is ludicrous. We accept that in no other place. We don't accept it when we look at a house or a car or a watch or a complex supercomputer. All of these things are those that we can design and build. When we look at that which is most complex and conclude it just happened, Truly, we have suppressed the truth and stand without excuse. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. There is the revelation within. God has built within mankind an understanding that there is a God. And God then has this revelation without I can look around and the heavens do declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. But when I seek to constantly suppress the truth, we have come to a very dangerous place that we will explore at future times in this same series. Something begins to happen that is a frightening occurrence and that is revelation withheld. I have given you revelation. I've placed it within you, God says. I've placed it without you. You can look around. And if you continually reject the revelation of God, it becomes revelation withheld. I become blinded to the realities that are all around me. Look at verse number 21, Romans chapter one. Because that when they knew God, They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. John Phillips said, when a man dethrones God from his thinking, he becomes consciously irreligious. When I remove God from the throne, there is only one person that I want to take the throne and it is me. Guess what I have to be to take the throne of my own heart? I have to be consciously irreligious. I wasn't wired that way. Even even evolutionists say that there's something about the wiring of man that makes him want to worship. Well, let me tell you, the wiring of man that makes me want to worship came from me by my designer. There's something within me. So I deny this. 
And, and now I deny the, the reality, the revelation of God around me. Guess what I've done? I have consciously dethroned God and I have also become consciously irreligious. I made a choice. I'm going to worship me. The word vain, you know, vain in their imagination, it just means empty, worthless. The word imaginations is interesting. It means questioning that which is true. Empty questioning. I have to question everything now. One man said it this way. Ignorance is the result of a choice. People who do not know God are those who have made that choice. Understanding God requires a moral decision, not additional information. Well, maybe I'll believe God if I keep getting additional information that's satisfactory to the God of me. He says, no, 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 no. Belief in God, you're making a moral decision. Responding to light offered. When we reject Jesus as God... We promote our own selves as the new God. This is what is at the very heart of all human rebellion and true of both the believer and the non-believer. You say, well, wait a minute. I know it's true of the non-believer because their foolish heart was darkened. Isn't it interesting how prone we are as followers of Christ to, to become even empty in our own imaginations? To seek to vie for, for right to the throne. A throne that we do understand is rightfully God's. It, it is belonging to Jesus. It, it is his throne. And yet how often do I do the very thing that Romans 1 says is the guilt of the unbeliever. God keep us all from having our own clarity regarding Jesus Christ darkened by our own pursuit of a throne that belongs exclusively to him. You and I have been provided with all the information about God that we need to take the next step toward him. And now are called upon to make a moral decision to accept or reject God. If you have not yet accepted God in the person of Jesus Christ, you have all the revelation you need. There is a God who has been so patiently within you, bringing you to himself. There is a world around you that shouts to the fact that there is a God who's left his footprints place after place after place. I don't have to look, but there's the footprint of God and there and there and God's been everywhere. And now it is left to you. Sadly, some in this room and quite possibly many watching are still putting God on trial. Well, I wonder, maybe, maybe some additional information will come to me and then I will make the decision to follow Christ. Jesus is the part of God presented to us throughout history and throughout the pages of his word that met all the qualifications for an acceptable sacrifice. He was declared by many who were not believers in him that he is the righteous one. There was no guilt found in him, person after person after person, down to the centurions that would drive the, the spear in his side. Truly, this was the son of God. So God, in the person of Jesus Christ, 
took a sinner's death, not because he was a sinner, but because I was a sinner and because you are. And so he died in our place. He took our punishment. The wrath of God was upon him so that we could be the recipients of his righteousness. (laughs) Righteousness applied to me, not earned, not purchased, just accepted. He proved he was God because he came out of a borrowed tomb three days after he'd been laid there. He rose again, like someday I will also rise again. He became the first fruits, the one who led the way. And I have accepted him. Have you? You have all you need to know that there is a God in heaven. And he is patient and loving and kind. But he is holy. And the wrath of God is not to be trifled. May we come running to the open arms of Almighty God.